Book three, chapter three, part one of the history of the Inquisition of Spain, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 2, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 3. Jurisdiction. Chapter 3. Bishops. There was in Spain but one class over which the Inquisition had no jurisdiction. Boniface the Eighth, at the close of the 13th century, had decreed that, when a bishop was suspect of heresy, the Inquisitor could not prosecute. The most that he could do was to gather evidence and send it to the Holy See, which reserved to itself judgment on the Episcopal order. This was embodied in the canon law and remained in force, although of course the Pope could delegate his power or could enlarge inquisitorial commissions, as when, in 1451, Nicholas V responded to the request of Juan II and included bishops among those subjected to the inquisitors whom he appointed. During the Middle Ages the question was one of scarce more than academic interest, but in Spain, where the conversos had attained so many lofty positions in the church, and where all of Jewish blood were regarded with suspicion, it might at any moment become of practical importance. The influence and power of the Inquisition would manifestly be increased if it should be granted faculties to prosecute bishops, and Torquemada seems to have applied for this, in 1487, intimating that there were suspects among the bishops. Innocent VIII, however, was not disposed to subject the whole episcopate of Spain to the Holy Office and replied, September 25th, reciting the decree of Boniface and telling him to examine carefully all the evidence collected by the inquisitors and, if in it he found what incriminated prelates or showed that they were defamed or suspected of heresy, he should send it in legal shape and carefully sealed to Rome, where it would be duly weighed and proper action be taken. If Torquemada failed in obtaining the desired jurisdiction over the Spanish episcopate, he could at least strike terror by accusing some of them to the Holy See, where their condemnation would be followed by that of their ancestors and large confiscations would result. Two of those of Jewish blood, Davila of Segovia and Aranda of Calahorra, were selected for attack. In the existing popular temper it could not have been difficult to collect evidence that they were regarded as suspect and were defamed for heresy. Presumably this was sent to Rome, and the matter was regarded as of sufficient moment to induce the dispatch of Antonioto Pallavicini, then Bishop of Tournay, as a special nuncio to confer with Torquemada. He returned to Rome with evidence deemed sufficient to justify their summons thither. In 1490, Davila went to Rome in his eightieth year. Since 1461 he had been Bishop of Segovia, and, in spite of Jewish descent, his family was one of the most influential in Castile intermarried with its noblest blood. He had given ample proof of pitiless orthodoxy. In 1468, when at Sepulveda, the rabbi, Solomon Pico, and the leaders of the synagogue were accused of crucifying a Christian boy during Holy Week, Bishop Davila promptly arrested sixteen of those most deeply implicated, of whom seven were burnt, and the rest were hanged, except a boy who begged to be baptized. Although this did not satisfy the pious Sepulvedans, who slew some of the remaining Jews and drove the rest away. He had given cause of offense, however, for, when the Inquisition was introduced in Segovia, he drove the Inquisitors from his diocese and remonstrated boldly with the sovereigns and, when this proved fruitless, it was in evidence that he dug up at night, from the cemetery of the convent of La Merced, the bones of his ancestors and concealed them, in order to destroy the proof of their interment in the Jewish fashion. In Rome he seems to have found favor with Alexander the Sixth, who, in 1494, sent him to Naples in company with his nephew, the Cardinal of Monreale. 
His case was protracted, and he died in Rome, October 28, 1497. The result is not positively known, but it must have been favorable, as otherwise his pious legacies would have been fruitless, and Culminaris, the historian of Segovia, would not have dared to call him one of the most useful prelates that the see had enjoyed, nor would Galindez de Carvajal have said that his errand to Rome was merely to defend the bones of his father. Pedro de Aranda of Calahora was a man of equal mark who, in 1482, acquired the high position of president of the Council of Castile. His father, Gonzalo Alonso, had been baptized with the famous Pablo de Santa Maria and had been ennobled. The Valladolid Tribunal prosecuted his memory with the result of a discordia, or disagreement, and the bishop went to Rome in 1493, where he gained papal favor and procured a brief transferring the case to the bishop of Cordova and the Benedictine prior of Valladolid. He remained in Rome when Alexander VI, in 1494, sent him to Venice as ambassador and subsequently made him master of the sacred palace. Since 1488, however, Torquemada had been collecting evidence against him. It was sent to Rome and, on the night of April 21, 1498, he was ordered to keep his room in the palace as a prison. On the 26th, he was brought before the Pope and had a hearing, after which he was taken to other rooms and kept under guard until September. Meanwhile, Alexander seized his property, and Sanuto intimates that his real crime was his abundance of ready money, while Burchard tells us that he was accused of heresy and Marania, and that he had many enemies. Three bishops of the Curia were commissioned as his judges. They heard many witnesses presented by the fiscal, and a hundred and one by the accused. But all of these testified against him. The points against him were that he said the Mosaic Law had one principle, the Christian three. In praying he said Gloria Patri, omitting Filio et Spiritui Sancto. He celebrated Mass after eating. He ate meat on Good Friday and other prohibited days. He declared that indulgences were useless, and had been invented by the fathers for gain, that there was neither hell nor purgatory but only paradise, and much more of the same nature. On November 16th the judges laid the evidence before the Pope in secret consistory when, by the advice of the cardinals, Aranda was deposed and degraded from orders. He was confined in the castle of Sant'Angelo, where he was given a good room, and he died there, apparently in 1500. Pope Alexander seems to have felt that it was necessary to guard his jurisdiction against the encroaching tendencies of the Spanish Inquisition, for in granting to the Bishop of Avila appellate powers, in his brief of November 4, 1594, volume 1, page 179, he was careful to accept the venerable brethren, the archbishops and bishops, whose cases by law were reserved to the Holy See. It was well understood by this time, however, and in the case of Archbishop Talavera of Granada, it will be remembered that Lucero made no attempt to do more than gather evidence to be sent to Rome, and when papal authority was obtained, it was granted not to the Inquisition, but to prelates specially commissioned. Half a century was to elapse before there was another case involving the Episcopal order. It has been sometimes thought that the Inquisition was concerned in the trial and execution of Antonio de Acuña, Bishop of Zamora, but such was not the fact, although the case illustrates the difficulty of holding a bishop accountable for his misdeeds. That turbulent prelate, somewhat absurdly styled a second Luther by Leo X, was an active leader in the Comunidades, who, after the defeat at Villalar, April 21, 1521, fled in disguise but was caught at Via Mediana, on the Castilian border. Episcopal immunity rendered him a doubtful prize. Charles V was resolved on his death, 
but there was considerable doubt as to how he was to be punished. The Inquisition was not brought into play, but, after some negotiation, Leo X was induced to issue a commission to Cardinal Adrian and the nuncio to take testimony and forward it for judgment by the Pope in consistory. On Adrian's accession to the papacy he transferred the commission to the Archbishop of Granada and the Bishop of Ciudad Rodrigo, but gave no authority to employ torture. Then Clement Seventh, by a brief of March 27, 1524, granted faculties to proceed to extremities, under which the trial went on, but apparently died out when carried to Rome. Wearied with five years' confinement in the castle of Simancas, Acuña made a fruitless attempt to escape, in which he killed the alcaide, Mendo Noguerol. Charles then sent to Simancas his alcalde de casa y corte, Rodrigo Ronquillo, with instructions to torture Acuña and put him to death, instructions faithfully executed, March 23, 1526. This violation of the immunities of the church caused no little scandal. Charles speedily obtained for himself, from Clement, absolution from the ipso facto excommunication incurred, but that which he had promised to procure for his subordinates was granted with difficulty and only after delay of more than a year, the final ceremony not taking place until September 8, 1527. At Valladolid a tradition was long current that Ronquillo came to an evil end, being carried off by demons. As the Lutheran revolt grew more threatening and the dread of its extending to Spain increased, a certain limited jurisdiction over bishops was conferred on Cardinal Manrique by a brief of Clement the Seventh, July 15, 1531. He was empowered to inquire against them if suspected of favoring Lutheran doctrines or evading those who held them. He was not permitted, however, to arrest and imprison, although he could punish them according to the canons, and he was granted the fullest faculties of absolving and rehabilitating those who abandoned their errors and asked for forgiveness. It is not likely that any occasion arose for the exercise of these faculties, but if there was, it has left no trace. This evidently was a personal delegation, expiring with Manrique, for no reference to it was made in the next case, that of Bartolomé de Carranza, Archbishop of Toledo. This was perhaps the most important affair during the career of the Inquisition. It attracted the attention of all Catholic Europe and illustrates in so many ways not only inquisitorial methods, but the conflict between orthodoxy and reform that it merits consideration in some detail. Inquisitor General Valdés, who was also Archbishop of Seville and whose name often comes before us, was perilously near disgrace in 1557. Philip II was in desperate straits for money. The glories of Saint-Quentin and Gravelines were not acquired cheaply, and the war forced upon him by Paul IV was exhausting his Italian possessions. From Flanders he sent Count Melito to Spain, with orders to raise forced loans from nobles and prelates, and the Princess Juana, then governor, called among others on Valdés for a hundred and fifty thousand ducats. The Bishop of Cordova, when approached, promptly furnished a hundred thousand and promised more if he could raise it. The Archbishop of Saragossa, who was asked for a hundred thousand, only gave twenty thousand. Valdés was even more niggardly and supplied nothing, although it was observed about this time that six loads of money reached Valladolid for him. Charles V, from his retirement of Eusta, wrote to him May 18th, expressing surprise that he, the creature of imperial favor, should hesitate to repay the benefits conferred, especially as he could have what security he desired for the loan. This letter, with one from Juana, was conveyed to him by Hernando de Ochoa, whose report to Charles, May 28th, of the interview, showed how little respect was felt for the man. Ochoa reproached him with having promised to see what he could do, 
in place of which he had gone into hiding at San Martin de la Fuente, fourteen leagues from the court at Valladolid, where he had lain for two months, hoping that the matter would blow over. Quote, he said to me, before a consecrated host, that the devils could fly away with him if ever he had one hundred thousand or eighty thousand or sixty thousand or thirty thousand ducats, for he had always spent much in charities and had made dotations amounting to one hundred fifty thousand. Ochoa pressed him hard. He admitted that his archbishopric, which he had held since 1546, was worth sixty thousand ducats a year, and Ochoa showed that, admitting his claims for charities and expenses, he had laid aside at least thirty thousand a year, quote, which you cannot possibly have spent, for you never have any one to dine in your house, and you do not accumulate silver plate, like other gentlemen. All this is notorious, and the whole court knows it. This embarrassed him, but he repeated with great oaths that he had no money, that it was not well thus to oppress prelates, nor would money thus obtained be lucky for war. God would help the king, and what would Christendom say about it? End quote. The honest Ochoa still urged him to return to the court and save his honor, intimating that the king might take action that would be highly unpleasant, but it was to no purpose. Valdez was obdurate and clung resolutely to his shekels. Philip had sent instructions as to the treatment of recalcitrants, probably relegating bishops to their sees and nobles to their estates. But there was hesitation felt as to banishing Valdez from the court, although the continued pressure of Charles and Juana only extorted a promise of fifty thousand ducats. Yet it was desired to remove him, and plans were tried to offer him a pretext for going. In March 1588, Juana ordered him to accompany the body of Queen Juana la Loca to Granada for interment, from which place he could visit his Seville church. He made excuses, but promised to go shortly. Then, when she repeated the order, he offered many reasons for evading it, including the heresies recently discovered in Seville and Murcia. The translation of the body could wait until September, and everybody, he said, was trying to drive him from the court. She referred the matter to the royal council, which decided that his excuses were insufficient and that, even if the interment were postponed, he could properly be ordered to reside in his see. It was evident to Valdez that something was necessary to strengthen his position, and he skillfully utilized the discovery of a few Protestants in Valladolid, of whom some were eminent clerics like Agustin Cazalla and Fray Domingo de Rojas, and others were persons of quality like Luis de Rojas and Doña Ana Enriquez. We shall have occasion to note hereafter the extraordinary excitement caused by the revelation that Protestantism was making inroads in court circles, the extent of which was readily exaggerated and it was stimulated and exploited by Valdez, who magnified his zeal in combating the danger and conjured, at least for the moment, the storm that was brewing. Philip wrote from Flanders, June 5, 1558, to send him to his see without delay. If he still made excuses, he was to be excluded from the Council of State, and this would answer until his approaching return to Spain, when he would take whatever action was necessary. Ten days later, on receiving letters from Valdez enumerating the prisoners and describing the efforts made to avert the danger, he countermanded the orders. Still, this was only a respite. We chanced to hear of a meeting of the Council of State in August or September, in which Juan de Vega characterized as a great scandal the disobedience of a vessel to the royal commands, in a matter so just as residence in his see, and he suggested that, when the court moved, no quarters should be assigned to Valdez to which Archbishop Carranza replied that it was no wonder that the orders of the king were unable to effect what the commandments of God and the church could not accomplish. Something further was necessary to render him indispensable, 
something that could be prolonged indefinitely, and if, at the same time, it would afford substantial relief to the treasury, he might be forgiven the niggardness that had resisted the appeals of the sovereign. He had for some time been preparing a scheme for this, which was nothing less than the prosecution of the primate of the Spanish church, the income of whose see was rated at from 150,000 to 200,000 ducats. To measure the full audacity of this, it is necessary to appreciate the standing of Archbishop Carranza. Bartolomé de Carranza y Miranda was born in 1503. At the age of twelve he entered the University of Alcalá. At eighteen he took the final vows of the Dominican order and was sent to study theology in the College of San Gregorio at Valladolid, where in 1530 he was made professor of arts, in 1533 junior professor of theology, and in 1534 chief professor as well as consultor of the tribunal of Valladolid. In 1540 he was sent as representative of his order to the general chapter held in Rome, where he distinguished himself and was honored with the doctorate, while Paul III granted him a license to read prohibited heretic books. On his return to Spain his reputation was national. He was largely employed by the Suprema in the censorship of books, especially of foreign Bibles, while the councils of Indies and Castile frequently submitted intricate questions for his judgment. In 1542 he was offered the See of Cusco, esteemed the wealthiest in the colonies, when he replied that he would willingly go to the Indies on the emperor's service, but not to undertake the cure of souls. On the convocation of the Council of Trent, in 1545, Charles V selected him as one of the delegates and, during his three years' service there, he earned the reputation throughout Christendom of a profound theologian. When, in 1548, Prince Philip went to join his father in Flanders, they both offered him the position of confessor, which he declined, as he did the Sea of Canaries, which was tendered to him in 1550. In this latter year he was elected provincial of his order for Castile, and in 1551 he was sent to the second convocation of the Council of Trent by Charles and also as the representative of Siliceo, Archbishop of Toledo. As usual, he played a prominent part in the council and, after its hasty dissolution, he remained there for some time employed in the duty of examining and condemning heretical books. In 1553 he returned to his professorship at Valladolid and when, in 1554, Prince Philip sailed for England to marry Queen Mary and restore the island to the unity of the church, he took Carranza with him as the fittest instrument for the work. Carranza subsequently boasted that, during his three years' stay in England, he had burnt, reconciled, or driven from the land thirty thousand heretics, and had brought two million souls back to the church. If we may believe his admiring biographers, he was the heart and soul of the Marian persecution, and Philip did nothing in religious matters without his advice. When in September 1555 Philip rejoined his father in Flanders, he left Carranza as Mary's religious adviser in which capacity he remained until 1557. Regarded by the heretics as the chief cause of their sufferings, he barely escaped from repeated attempts on his life by poison or violence. It is true that English authorities of the period make little mention of him, but the continued confidence of Philip is ample evidence that his persecuting zeal was sufficient to satisfy that exacting monarch. When, in 1557, Carranza rejoined Philip in Flanders, he was probably engrossed in the preparation and printing of his large work on the Catechism, of which more hereafter. But he still found time to investigate and impede the clandestine trade of sending heretic books to Spain. That he had completely won Philip's esteem and confidence was seen when Siliceo of Toledo died, May 1, 1557, 
and Philip appointed him as successor in the archbishopric. He refused the splendid prize and suggested three men as better fitted for the place. Philip persisted. He was going to a neighboring convent to confess and commune prior to the opening of the campaign and ordered Carranza to obey on his return. When he came back, he sent the presentation written in his own hand. Carranza yielded, but on condition that, as the war with the Pope would delay the issue of the bulls, the king in the interval could make another selection. This effort to avoid the fatal gift was fruitless. On his return from the campaign, Philip, in an autograph letter, summoned him to fulfill his promise and made the appointment public. So high was Carranza's reputation that, when the presentation was laid before the consistory in Rome, on December 6th, it was at once confirmed, without observing the preconization, or the customary inquiry into the fitness of the appointee, or a constitution which prohibited final action on the same day. The elevation of a simple friar to the highest place in the Spanish church was a blow to numerous ambitions that could scarce fail to arouse hostility. Valdez himself was said to have aspirations for the position and to be bitterly disappointed. Pedro de Castro, bishop of Cuenca, had also cherished hopes and was eager for revenge. Carranza, moreover, was not popular with the hierarchy. He was that unwelcome character, a reformer within the church, and, while everyone acknowledged the necessity of reform, no one looked with favor on a reformer who assailed his profitable abuses. As far back as 1547, while in attendance on the Council of Trent, Carranza had preached a sermon on one of the most crying evils of the time, the non-residence of bishops and beneficiaries, and had embodied his views in a tractate as severe as a Lutheran would have written on this abuse, and the kindred one of pluralities, to which possibly the stringent tridentine provisions on the subject may be attributed. Such an outburst was not calculated to win favor, seeing that the splendor of the curia was largely supported by the prelacies and benefices showered upon its members, and that in Spain there was scarce an inquisitor or a fiscal who was not a non-resident beneficiary of some preferment. Carranza had, moreover, a peculiarly dangerous enemy in a brother Dominican, Melchor Cano, perhaps the leading Spanish theologian of the time, when Spanish theology was beginning to dominate the church. Learned, able, keen-witted, and not particularly scrupulous, he was in intellect vastly superior to Carranza. There had been early rivalry, when both were professors of theology, and causes of strife in the internal politics of the order had arisen so that Cano could scarce view without bitterness the sudden elevation of his brother Frylus. His position at the time was somewhat precarious, when in 1556 Paul IV forced war on Philip II. That pious prince sought the advice of theologians as to the propriety of engaging in hostilities with the vicegerent of God, and the Pariser, or opinion, which Cano drew up, was an able state paper that attracted wide attention. He defended uncompromisingly the royal prerogatives. He virtually justified the German revolt when the centum gravamina of the Diet of Nuremberg in 1522 were unredressed, and he described the corruption of Rome as a disease of such long standing as to be incurable. This hardy defiance irritated Paul in the highest degree. April 21, 1556, he issued a brief summoning that son of perdition, Melchor Cano, to appear before him within sixty days for trial and sentence, but the brief was suppressed by the royal council and Cano was ordered not to leave the kingdom. The Spanish Dominicans rallied to his defense. In the chapter of 1558, he was elected provincial and deputy to the general chapter to be held in Rome, but Paul ordered the election to be annulled and Cano to be deprived of his priorate of San Esteban. 
Cano complained of lukewarmness in his defense on the part of both Philip and Carranza, and it is easy to understand that, feeling keenly the disgrace inflicted on him, he was in a temper to attack anyone more fortunate than himself. At this inauspicious moment Carranza presented himself as a fair object of attack by all who, from different motives, might desire to assail him. If we may judge from his writings, he must have been impulsive and inconsiderate in his speech, given to uttering extreme views which made an impression, and then qualifying them with restrictions that were forgotten. He was earnestly desirous of restoring the church to its ancient purity, and by no means reticent in exposing its weaknesses and corruption. He had been trained at a time before the Tridentine definitions had settled points of faith which, since the twelfth century, had been the subjects of debate in the schools, and even in his maturity the Council of Trent had not yet been clothed with the awful authority subsequently accorded to it. For the inglorious exit of its first two convocations, in 1547 and 1552, gave little promise of what lay in the future. The echo of the fierce Lutheran controversies had scarce penetrated into Spain, and comparatively little was there known of the debates which were shaking to its center the venerable structure of the church. Carranza's very labors in condemning heretic books and converting heretics had acquainted him with their doctrines and modes of expression. He was a confused thinker, and his impulsive utterances were liable to be construed in a sense which he did not anticipate. As early as 1530 he had been denounced to the Inquisition by Fray Juan de Villamartin as a defender of Erasmus, especially in the matter of confession and the authorship of the Apocalypse, and, during his persecuting career in England, he more than once gave opportunity, in his sermons, to unfavorable comment. It was also in evidence that when in Rome in 1539 he had written to Juan de Valdez in Naples, asking what authors should be studied for understanding scripture, as he would have to teach that subject, and that Valdez replied in a letter which Carranza circulated among his students in Valladolid, a letter highly heretical in its teachings which Valdez subsequently included in his 110 divine considerations. It is true that in 1539 Juan de Valdez was not reckoned a heretic, but if the letter was correctly identified with the consideration in question, its circulation was highly imprudent, for it asserted that the guides for the study of scripture are prayer inspired by God, and meditation based on spiritual experience thus discarding tradition for private interpretation, and it further dwelt upon the confidence which the soul should feel in justification through Christ. In the death struggle with Protestantism the time had passed for easy-going latitude of opinion and, in the intricate mazes of scholastic theology, it was necessary to walk warily, for acute censorship could discover heresy in any unguarded expression. The great services rendered by Cardinal Moroni and Cardinal Pole did not save them from the prosecuting zeal of Paul the Fourth, and Contarini and Sadoleto were both suspect of heresy. Under such conditions a rambling inconsequential thinker like Carranza was peculiarly open to attack. End of Book 3, Chapter 3, Part 1